If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Philippians, the book of Philippians chapter 3, if you're trying to, to find that in your New Testament. That's your first clue, New Testament. Um, it's one of Paul's letters. It's after the Gospels and the book of Acts, you find this book that we refer to as the book of Philippians. It was originally, of course, a letter. Uh, Galatians and Ephesians, Philippians. You hit Colossians, so it's a good book, but you've gone too far. Philippians chapter 3. I want to talk to for a few minutes about dual dangers, uh, the dual dangers that we face of which we need to be uh, aware and beware of. Case in point, ancient mythology, Homer, and uh, in his telling of Scylla and Charybdis, in the stories, the, the accounts of, of, of Odysseus, his travels, his Adventure, Scylla and Charybdis, this terrible, these two twin terrible uh, hazards to uh, seagoing travelers. They were placed in such a way in the Mediterranean area. They were so close, so difficult to navigate. If you, if you went too far trying to steer away from the one, Scylla, this giant, horrific, six-headed monster, if you tried to steal too far away, from it over here towards Charybdis, this giant, horrific whirlpool that was sure to just destroy whatever vessel you were in. Well, you didn't want to steer too far away to avoid one. You'd end up being destroyed by the other and vice versa. The dual dangers, very real dual dangers and extreme responses we can take in trying to avoid the one and then getting ourselves chewed up by the other. Now, what was... Um, made up in the stuff of fiction in Homer's mythology is actually true in the spiritual realm. And what I want to speak to you on that point regarding two things, dual dangers, legalism and license. And by legalism, what I mean is, is this, relying on our obedience to the law, whether our laws or God's laws, to be that which secures and keeps us safe before God making too much, if you will, of, of the law. Um, or license, this is, the, this is your dual dangers now, so you've got legalism over here, license over here, as though there is no law, as though there are no rules. Live how you please, it's fine. So they're in making, over here is making too much of the law, over here is making far too little. Dual dangers, they look so different on the outside and get to this later as we go. It looks so dangerous, looks so different on the outside, but in the end, they're both equally ruinous and need to be aware. Well, um, like I said, Philippians chapter 3 is where we are here this morning, in particular verses 17 through 21. Now, because of two things one, it's been so long, it's been three weeks, I think, since we were last in this study. And also because of what Paul is saying here in verses 17 and 21 is so much a part of, uh, is affected by, so much by everything that he said thus far in the chapter. I'm going to start in verse 1. Okay, So at the beginning of chapter 3 of Philippians, that's where I'm starting, I'm going to read to the end. All right, So starting in verse 1 and then going all the way over to verse 21, um, hang on and pay especially close attention once we get towards that last paragraph. Hear now the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. 
though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Let's pray together. Lord, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your Testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me, as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Oh Lord, may that be our prayer. May those words be an expression of our own heart. May those words form something in our own heart here this morning. Uh, we pray that you would help us to understand what Paul was addressing here in this portion of this letter to the people that he cared for, obviously, so very deeply. Uh, there he was writing in, in 
a state of Roman imprisonment, awaiting trial, not knowing exactly what was coming, writing to this church, these people that he had come to care for, that he knew and he knew something of, of their struggles, but also the hope that they had. And ah, we, we know we are really not so very different at all. And the passion, the heart, the love that is coming forth from the Apostle's pen is, is really an expression of your own to your people. And we know is an expression of your own to us this morning. And we ask that you would help us hear that. Warm our hearts towards you anew, we pray. Amen. Well, it's said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And that's true, in a way, if you rightly understand the, the phrase. Uh, you know, if those whom we imitate, those whom we model, the examples that we follow, we do that oftentimes because those are the folks that we admire. It's those are the folks that we look up to. And you can see that uh, in so many different ways, you know, in terms of sports fans and their, the athletes that they look up to, or maybe it's other kinds of fans and pop stars and, you know, they'll, they'll dress that way, they'll shave their head that way, I, I, I don't know. Um, students looking up to a mentor or players up to a coach. Uh, children, especially when they're young, modeling themselves after what they see mommy and, and daddy do. And, and all those things, by the way, for, for good and for bad, we tend to follow the models that we set for ourselves. So, you know, it's true. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. But I would add a uh, something else to kind of come alongside that. From the other side, I guess you could say, that while it's true that we do tend to imitate those that we look up to, by the same token, our examples and those that we follow have certain formative effects on our own lives. Those that we model, those that we pattern ourselves all have, have, have power over us, if, if you will, to some degree. There's a quote there in your, your quotes and notes here this morning uh, from the old Puritan Cotton Mather. You don't hear names like that so much today, but anyway. Um, Cotton Mather wrote this, Examples do strangely charm us into imitation. When holiness is pressed upon us, we're prone to think that it is doctrine calculated for angels and spirits whose dwelling is not with flesh. But when we read the lives of them that excelled in holiness, though they were persons of like passions with ourselves, the conviction is wonderful and powerful. So again, my point being, examples are powerful. The models that we follow are powerful. That whom, those whom we imitate, there's, there's influence upon us. And so we need to be careful. Here's my point. We need to be careful in terms of the examples and the models that we put before us. That's a major component of something that Paul is trying to communicate here in our passage. But there's a second thing. So put that on the, on the shelf just for a moment. The, the examples we follow, and now... I want you to consider this, and we're going to wed these two things together in a minute. Not just the models that we follow, but the dangers that we face. The dangers that we face, and they're, they're real. You know, old Ben Kenobi said to young Luke Skywalker as they're traveling about on the sands of Tatooine, Moss Eisley Spaceport. Some of you could quote this, but it's okay. You will never find a more wretched hive 
of scum and villainy, we must be cautious. Well, life is like that, gang. Um, the unholy triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil is real. The spiritual dangers that are around us all the time, or if I can put it this way for you C.S. Lewis fans in the room, the screw tape letters is and is not a work of fiction. So you have on the one hand the, the models we follow, and then you have on the other hand the dangers we face. And you wed those two things together, and what Paul is saying is we need to be careful about the models that we follow, the examples that we follow, because of the spiritual dangers that we face and the pull that is upon us uh, all the time towards one direction or another. But how, how do we do that? How do we wrestle with this kind of thing? How, do we, how, how might we be careful, given the spiritual dangers, how might we be careful in terms of the examples that we follow. Well, Paul, loving these people as he did, and I would say, again, as I was, we were praying a moment ago, this is an expression. Paul is an apostle of Jesus. He is Jesus' representative. It was authorized agent. So in essence, what Paul is saying is what Christ is saying to that church and to us. And so in his love, in Jesus' love for us, he is not just saying, be careful, but he's giving us marks, signs, things to be aware of and beware of. Especially when you consider, you know, think back in the, this is where the looking at the whole of Philippians 3 comes into play. There are two warnings that Paul has given here when you look at the whole of the chapter. In, way back in verse 2, he's giving a warning regarding legalism. Making too much, if you will, of, law, of the law of God in a wrong way. Verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he goes on to talk about that for the next several verses. Verse On through verse 11, then starting in verse 12 through 16, he uh talks about, okay, well, it's not then that we ought to be presumptuous on God's grace. There is a response that's being called for, but that response needs to be motivated by the gospel. And Paul speaks of that in verses 12 through 16. And then he gets to verse 17, and we have a second warning. The dual dangers. On the one hand, you have not Scylla and Charybdis, but legalism and license. And so now Paul is addressing yet another danger here of an extreme response. Verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes. You know, it's another warning. Keep your eyes. Fix your eyes. Rivet your attention on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Why? Well, then he goes on to unpack that and describe this licentious behavior. And that's where we're going here now this morning is looking at the markers here lest we drift into something like this, markers, contrasts of three things. Vision, destination, and lives. Okay? It's the second of the two warnings. There's three markers that Paul gives us here. Okay? The second of the two warnings. He's already dealt with the warning regarding legalism. Now he's dealing with the warning regarding license. Um, and these markers here for us. So the first of these markers, there's a contrast of, of vision, how we, how we see even, even the present. 
Now, now Paul gives this to us um, here in verses 18 and 19. For many, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now first, who is he speaking of? He's describing these folks as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's pretty strong. That's pretty strong. And in this case, he's referring to people who are professing Christians, but whose lives bear no mark whatsoever of that profession. There is no sign, no glimmer of the fruit of the Spirit in, in operation in their lives. It's all talk, and that's it. And he describes them as being enemies of the cross of Christ. Um, with eyes, uh, with their minds set on, uh, as he says here in the end of verse 9, on, on earthly things, on the here and now, on the temporal, and what's in front of them, and, and, and that's it. With no more. It's not to say we ought, we ought to not care and be interested and invested and active and involved and engaged in the here and now. I mean, my goodness, remember the quote I read earlier as we began the service? From C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity, those who are the most heavenly-minded are doing the most earthly good. They're engaged. They're engaged. But the problem is when, that, when, the, when the things of the here and now, that's the limit of your horizon. It's all you see. That's the problem. In contrast to enemies of the cross, Paul describes followers of Christ, verse 20, but, as you see the contrast, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They're, they're engaged, they're active, they're living in the here and now, but at the same time, they recognize that their citizenship belongs somewhere else. They're, they're living here and now, but at the same time, their values and priorities are grounded in, are shaped by someone else, by somewhere else. It's, it affects all that they are and all that they, they do. So Paul is saying, look, there's a contrast here between the way uh, enemies of the cross see things and followers of Christ see things. Mark this and be careful who you follow. Now this metaphor would have spoken strongly to the people there in Philippi. Now weeks ago, as we were back in chapter 1, we, we talked about this because this is not the first time Paul has, has uh, tapped into this imagery of citizenship in the course of this letter. And citizenship was a big deal in the Roman colony of Philippi. It was like a miniature Rome. It was like an outpost of Rome. To be a citizen of Rome in the city of Philippi was a big deal. It meant that even as you lived amidst your fellow Philippians, you know yourself to be a citizen of Rome, which means the, the mother city, if you will, the homeland, if you will, sets the priorities and the goals and everything of what you're about while you're living in Philippi. You're at home, but you're not home. Home is Rome, in a way. But you're living as a Roman in Philippi. And Paul is saying, take that, and apply it as a citizen of heaven. Your home is not your home. You have another home. 
So even as you're making your home here, know where your real home is. You're a citizen of heaven. Now, how does that impact in terms of thinking about, well, who do I follow? Whose examples do I, do I, 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 I look to to help me here because I need them? Uh, some things are, are so much better, what is it, the old phrase, caught than taught? Um, well, in terms of vision, how we see, think in terms of, well, what are the standards? What are the goals? What are the priorities? And for what, towards what will I sacrifice and give myself towards or withhold energy and time and sacrifice from? Enemies of the cross will answer those questions one way. Citizens of, of heaven will answer those questions in another and there's care and discernment that needs to be taken there. And Paul says, look, I know you need examples. I understand that. But be careful who you choose. Be careful who you follow. Here are the markers. Some of them anyway. How you see. Vision. Next, uh, the second would be destination. So not just how do you see, but where are you going? In terms of the examples, where, where are they going, I guess I should, should say. And Paul paints, uh, says some pretty strong things in here. He speaks of, in terms of enemies of the cross, their trajectory. You can see where they're going uh, um, ultimately by how they're living now. Living now as though there was no God. Living now separated and independent from Him. Their lives unaffected by any knowledge or understanding of the true and living God. And what Paul is saying is their trajectory is moving in a certain direction that's telling us what their end will be, barring an interruption by the gospel. Where ultimately they're going to find themselves at, as he says here, um, where is that? Their end. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Speaking of an ultimate, eternal, irreversible alienation from the true and living God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, I sound like a Louisian today, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell... Choose it. Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful. Enemies of the cross, they have an end. They have a destination. But so do the followers of Christ. Verses 20 through 21. Again, this word, but, setting that contrast so clearly. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Paul is speaking here in terms of the end of a destination, the contrast for followers of Christ. First would be the, a transformation by the King. The, is, is, uh, I think it's Tolkien that speaks of the, the King to come, the healing hands of the king. 
That's who we're talking about here, not Aragorn. Jesus, the true king, which, which in a way is, is almost the greatest thing to wait for. I mean, the longer you walk with Christ, the longer you've been in this relationship with Him and the stuttering and the stopping and the ebb and the flow and all of that, you come to realize all the more and, and ache for that transformation. Because as time goes by, you're seeing more and more of the darkness of your heart. Oh, the goodness of your Savior, yes. But at the same time, the darkness of your heart, that's a mark of spiritual maturity too. Seeing both and all glory and praise to the Savior all the more. The longer you walk with Him. And know that a day is coming when from the inside out, you're going to be changed. And that's a completely different destination. Now, I said, I don't know if you caught this, I said that's almost the greatest thing to look forward to. But it's not the greatest. The greatest thing is the king himself. It's not the transformation by the king, but the appearance, the revelation, the return of the king. I mean, that's really what Paul is emphasizing here in verses 20 and 21. His return, where we will become not only somehow like him, but with him. Seeing Him face to face, the Emmanuel promise, finally come in full with Him. God with us and He and us with Him. And Paul is saying, my friends, I know you need an example. I'm speaking of that to you now, of people around you, of who you will follow, of who you will imitate in following Christ. Mark these contrasts well. Aspire towards, have an eye for, have an ear for someone who has a sense of homesickness about them and yet hope at the same time. Mark it. That is a mark of someone following after me, says Jesus. There's a contrast in these destinations. Now, again, well, how would you see that? Let me give you another, another possibility. There's so many, but I'm just going to give you one. And that would be how, in, in view of the destinations, in view of the ultimate ends that await us. How do we face, how do we grapple with the disappointments of life, of suffering, and it's many different forms? How do we respond to that in view of the ultimacy of reality? Enemies of the cross respond to disappointments and suffering as being but an interruption and inconvenience, and they will scream in protest. Because life's not supposed to be like that. And it's not fitting their agenda. Followers of Jesus recognize this as this is part of life in a fallen world. And we, so we should not be surprised. And yet at the same time, we should be buoyed, so sobered and grounded because we know why it is what it is. At the same time, buoyed, grounded, lifted, encouraged because we know it will not forever be this way. Because the King is coming to make it all right. And in the meantime, instead of it just being an obstacle to our agenda, it, that suffering, that disappointment in His hands may serve to be an opportunity for us to grow in our relationship with Him. 
Those are two widely divergent responses. And Paul says, mark them. I know you need examples. Be careful of the ones you follow. Lastly, contrast of lives. And this just makes sense because, of course, how you see things and where you're heading has implications in terms of day-to-day life and how things play out. And Paul speaks to this as well. Enemies of the cross. You see this there in verses, uh, verses 19 and, and 20. Uh, well, I guess, yeah, I should see. Yeah, verse 19 in particular, their end is destruction, their God, listen to this, this graphic description, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Paul is saying that rather, regarding enemies of the cross, rather than mastering and governing their desires, their impulses, their appetites, They are mastered and governed by them. And then to soothe their guilty, heavy consciences will reverse all the standards. They will glory in their shame. Now we are all prone to that. We are all prone to that. Followers of Christ, on the other hand, are marked by something different, and that is a humility. I've alluded to this already, a humility about themselves, longing for seeing their need for this transformation, seeing their their, their waywardness in the very thing that they can see of, of enslavement to desire and longing to be free of anything like that, knowing of their need, longing to be changed. But I would add one more thing, and this is it's almost hidden hidden in the text, but it's there. Not just a humility regarding themselves, but a heart for other people. You know how how Paul describes these enemies of the cross? For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, he hurts for these people. His heart is aching, breaking, broken for these people. The shipwrecks that he can see. It's not that he's just just admonishing with dry eyes. He's admonishing with with tears streaming down his cheeks. And that's, that's what the gospel does to us, friends. It makes us... It does something to your emotions over time. Now, whatever your temperament may be, I know that affects us in different ways, but over time, give the gospel enough time, you will laugh more heartily about the things that are of just joy and wonder in this life, and you will cry and weep more deeply about the heartache and brokenness of the things around you, and in particular, the people around you. The gospel does that. It makes us more human. It makes us more like Jesus. It makes us more like Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, you can see these marks by how people see and where they're going and how they live. Mark it. Mark it. And mark it well. Okay, coming back to where we started. 
Remember, this is all in the context of these dual dangers that we face uh, in the Christian life, tending towards, sliding towards one or the other, towards legalism, towards uh, license. And Paul, in this passage, has been reminding us and pleading with us to be wary of the slide on this way towards license. So looking at that whole picture, let me just end with this image. I, I remember years ago uh, on a family vacation, uh, I don't know how old I was. It was doesn't matter. Um, we're on our way towards this vacation destination. I'm thinking probably the Outer Banks from the central Virginia. For some reason, we took a side route through the Dismal Swamp, which is aptly named, by the way, depending on what parts you've, you've seen. Now, I have this vague recollection of, of being on this road. It's an... It's, it's, it, a core of engineers of some kind had to build, it's not natural, it's this earthen mound of a road, okay? It's a two-lane road, and you're making your way down this road, and off to your left you see swamp, and off to your right you see swamp with a steep embankment, you know, on both. And in my child's imagination, see, they, my parents have told me what kind of critters live in the swamp. Bears! Bobcats, birds, that's, that's good, but alligators! Poisonous snakes of all kinds, and I'm sitting there, in, you know, looking out the window, you know, looking at it as it's going by, and wondering to myself, what else is in that water? Submerged cars of vacationers who, who got distracted. So I'm very quiet there in the back seat, and I'm wanting to make sure my father's right down the road. Okay, my my imagination was a little overactive, but you understand the metaphor. You want to stay up on top. Here. You want to stay centered here. You don't want to slide off into the swamp of either legalism or license. And it's very easy to do either one. I said a little while ago that, that they look so different, and they do, but the roots are the same. The source is the same. Being untied to Christ, becoming disconnected from the gospel. And depending on your temperament and depending on the issue, you will slide into legalism or license if you are not tethered to the gospel and not grounded in it. So then that begs the question, how, how do we stay tied to Him? How do we stay out of the swamp? Well, first, recognizing the pull of your heart towards one or the other. You've got to reckon with that. And then, I don't mean to sound simplistic, but I'm just going to end with this. Keep your eyes on Christ. The gospel, His grace, as the motivator of your life. His word as the direction for your life. His spirit as the power at work in your life. Keep your eyes on Christ. And He, by His grace, will keep you out of the swamp. Let's pray. Lord, you love us so. You know the power of examples. You know the reality of the dangers. You give us these warnings. You give us these marks and these signs that we would be careful. We pray that you'd help us to heed them, to recognize our own tendency towards the left, the right, the legalism of the license. We pray that you would help us to learn and to grow and what it means to keep our eyes on You. 
in hearing you and following you and relying on you. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. We are weak, but you are strong. Amen.